for Hi, Rabbi Sheffel. Hey, Shalene, how are you? Good, how are you doing? Baruch Hashem. Okay, that's on the uh, the screen in front of you? Yes. Okay, outstanding. So, uh, when we left off last week, got a little bit uh, interrupted. Baruch Hashem, she made it. and She's already ready to come home. Uh, head, start heading home tomorrow night. But right now, all should be good. I shouldn't get interrupted. So, we were uh, discussing the introductory paragraphs that we say to Tachanan on Monday and Thursday. And as we're going to see, so we started reading one of the stories, the version of the Avudraham. And then what we're going to see is that there's a, a, an alternative version of that that is mentioned by another one of the Rishonim, the Ra'avon. Again, you don't need to know the names of either one of these, but these are just two different versions of a, of a similar story. So the Avudraham, so he says, so remember, there are seven yeah, paragraphs yeah. here in the, in the, uh, the long Tachnon, which we say on Monday, Thursday, and it's broken down three, two, and two. That's the way that uh, Mepharshim understand it. So the Avudram tells a story of uh, So he says that what happened was, is that it was established by three elders who were sent on boats into exile from Yerushalayim, and they arrive in a particular country, and the, uh, the ruler of that country uh, says, where are you guys from? Who are you guys? What's your origin? What are you, uh, where, where do you come from? And they said, we're Jews, we're descendants of the Avos and the Himos. So, so he said, oh, I've heard stories about you. I took a course once in college about the Jewish history. And I remember that there are all sorts of miraculous things which have happened to Jews over the, uh, over the years. And I'd like to go ahead and test you in a fiery furnace. To see whether or not you are truly descendants of your ancestors, like who were able to be tossed into a fiery furnace and came out unscathed. So it'll be a good way to go ahead and see whether or not you guys are authentic Jews or you are not authentic Jews. The they said, listen, let's not be hasty over here. Maybe we can go ahead and we can prepare for 30 days or so just to get ourselves uh, uh, acclimated to the heat. And this is where we left off last week. And in the end, one of the people involved had a dream. And what he was told in the dream was that there's a, a significant pasuk, a relevant pasuk, and that pasuk contains the word ki twice, chaf yud twice, and the word lo, lamet aleph three times. V'lo yadamahu. And the person who had the dream was not an expert in Tanakh, and he had no idea what pasuk was being referenced. Amrulo, so some of the people who were present, so they said, zeh pasuku, so they pointed to a pasuk in Yishayahu. Again, you go through all of Tanakh in your head, and you run a scan for that one pasuk that has the word key twice in the word low three times, and you'll find that in all of Tanakh, there's only one pasuk which meets that criteria, yep. and that is a pasuk in Yeshaya, Perik Nem Gimel Pasuk Beis, which says as follows, Ki savor b'mayim, that when you go through water, itcha ani, so I will be together with you. And, uvenaharos, and if you go through rivers, 
So lo yishtafucha, so they will not wash you away. Then, so so far we have one key and one low. Ki selech b'mo'esh, another key, that's the second key, when you go through fire, when you walk through fire, lo sikave, so you will not be singed, so that's low. Vilehava lo sivarbach, and no flame will burn you. So here, obviously, Ab uh, is an approach. Not only did they find the passage which has the correct wording in it, but it's also a passage which relates to the fact that you could be thrown into fire, and Hashem says that you're going to, you're going to be good to go. So, therefore, they said to this ruler, "Okay, we're ready to go now. We are now uh, prepared to go into the fire." The nichnash beish, and they actually allowed themselves to be thrown into the fire. And miraculously, obviously, so the fire divides into three corridors or creates three corridors that they could walk through. And all three of these elders, so they emerged in peace. They were fine. And in response to that, so they went ahead and they posed these seven paragraphs that we say on Monday, Thursday, Tachnon, to commemorate the miracle which, which occurred. And he said, And they be, paragraphs primarily begin, you see like on the screen in front of you, you see the second word over there is the word Rachum, and it's going to end uh, with... Uh, it'll end with Rachum, some of them will end with Rachum. Maybe overall it ends with Rachel, he means. No, not even. Okay, either way. No, it's frozen. So he says, but they, they, they begin and end with Rachel. Um, okay, and then he says, and then he goes ahead and he identifies the three parts. So this is story number one. That's the Avu Drum's version of the, of the story. Then the Ravan goes ahead and says that it was a slightly different story. He says, another one of the, uh, the Rishonim, so he says that so Hashem. So it was established by men of stature. Who were exiled from Yushalayim at the time of the Chorban, the time of destruction. And um, so he went ahead and he thought that it would be a funny thing that he's going, not only is he going to exile the Jews, but he would do it in a funny way, just to amuse himself. It wasn't enough to exile the Jews, but he had to do it in an amusing way. And he commanded that they should go ahead and they should construct boats. And he put them in there without any rudder on the boat and without anybody to sail the boat, to direct the boat. So he just throws them into a bathtub and just pushes them off of the pier and says, okay, like throwing a, a bottle in the, uh, in, in the ocean. And who knows when it's going to reach uh, dry land, where it's going to reach dry land, who knows what's going to happen with it. And that's what he did with the Jews. He thought that that would be amusing. He thought that that would be funny. The Grishobi, I mean, just sent them out into the sea. And the wind gets uh, gets going. So he says, and they threw them out of the onto dry land. Okay, uh, and to all sorts of different places. Oh, sorry, I have to get it. 
in the world of prayer, he's got a similar story, and he actually puts it out. He names the uh, the uh, the places by um, by their city name. Oh, he says one is they end up like I think this is in France. So one ends up in Lyon. There's a there's a ration there, but I don't know if like in uh, in French the, like a ration would be a silent ra- or a silent R or something like that. Those who are the French speakers, so you'll let me know. He says Vacheres Rinas Arla. Second one is in A R L E S, and then the third one is in the uh, the place of Bordeaux. Okay, and he says that. Um, uh, so one of them, they they ended up in, in a place where they were they were initially uh, well well received, and then afterwards, so they also the uh, a new ruler took over, and that new ruler who took over wanted to go ahead and uh, and, uh, and 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 punish them, wanted to test them out, and he says he uses he borrows the uh, the language from the uh, from uh, from Paro in the beginning of Sefer Shmos. So a new king arose. And whatever the first one had done for them, which was positive, which was beneficial, so this new king went ahead and took away from them and denied it from them. And he went ahead and he issued all sorts of decrees for which there was no, uh, there was no escape. And his, uh, his power was very great against them. And uh, there were three people, about three tzaddikim who were there with them. And these people were remnants. They had come from Yushalayim. And he went ahead and they cried out to Hashem as they were in distress. And in their righteousness, so they were able to extricate the Jews from the, uh, from the danger and from the harsh decrees. And in the process, they fasted uh, many times. And they went ahead and they wore sackcloth. And ultimately, Hashem went ahead and redeemed them. And since Hashem ultimately went ahead and redeemed them, so therefore these three tzaddikim who were there, so they went ahead and they uh, they composed these seven paragraphs in appreciation, number one, in, in the uh, prayer that uh, that they shouldn't be harmed by their enemies, and then in appreciation of the fact that Gersh Baruch Hu went ahead and uh, and saved them. So that is that uh, that is version number two, similar type of story, but not exactly the uh, the uh, the same. Okay, so that is the as far as the history of the prayer. Give me one second. I'm so sorry.
Was this an example of what you spoke about, Shabbos, this afternoon? Yeah, right. <laughs> exactly. And uh, on Sunday night. Um, so I hope, I hope I responded calmly and did not uh, <laughs> wring his neck in the process. Okay, if you hear sirens, it has nothing to do with uh, my discipline. <laughs> so the uh yeah so so that is as far as the uh, the history or the origin of that uh, of of those of those prayers now there's a couple of interesting things that the el yaraba writes about this and so he says two very important things and anybody who's been in a shul on a monday or thursday know this uh, know this to be true but the el yaraba goes ahead and he writes he says batsasi besefer tsedaladerah so he goes and references a particular sefer, and he says, that these seven paragraphs have to be read with good concentration, good kavana, ubimatun. Ubimatun means slowly. Slowly meaning not quickly. He says, lokomo, and this is, not a, this is not a recent thing, this is not a 21st century thing. He says, lokomo shehurgalu rov tzibur. And it's not like most shliach tzibors uh, do, where they mumble their way through it as quickly as they possibly can, just barely getting out the words, and certainly without any kavana, any concentration, or any understanding of it whatsoever. He says, and I'm not, I'm not exactly sure what the phrase means, but he says, to the point, the way I'm, I'm, I'm imagining what he means is, to the point where it's impossible for anybody in the tzibur to actually keep up that pace. And you have like one up, one down, like they're doing every other word or something like that. In that way, if you're skipping every, every other word, so then you could go ahead and you could keep pace with the shliach tzibur, the rate at which tachnun uh, or Monday or Thursday are said. But obviously the el Yarabu is quoting this. And from the tzedah obviously he's opposed to that because these are very special prayers and his very special prayers, which have a lot to do with our, uh, our, uh, our, uh, our uh, uh, mercy that we are seeking from HaKadosh Baruch Hu on the special days, like we talked about last week, why Monday and Thursday are going to be special days. So these are days where we're going to want to go out of our way to go ahead and say it with proper kavana and proper intent, rather than what seems to be the common practice of seeing just how quickly you could go ahead and you can make your way through these, uh, these uh, seven paragraphs. Um, many of you have heard me read the Megillah quickly. Uh, and if you haven't, so I could read the Megillah quickly. And I can tell you that in many shuls, I can't even get to paragraph number five by the time they're already done with all seven of them. And I just don't know how that's, uh, you know, it's possible to do that. And certainly, even if you could potentially read that quickly, I don't know how you could have uh, uh, concentration to be mindful of what you're saying at, the, at that particular pace. But as I said, this is not something which is new in recent. This is something which is uh, which is uh, which is uh, which, which which is common. Okay, now um, okay. Actually, what we'll do in my own notes. I'm going to go a little bit out of order. But okay, so that is as far as those seven paragraphs are concerned. Then on a regular. Now, on a Monday or Thursday, or whether or not it is a regular day of the week. So at this point, we go ahead and we say Tachnun. So Tachnun, which we say, so is, or what's referred to also as Nefila Sapayim. 
So we go ahead and so this has great significance. The uh, the poskim go ahead and the uh, the bali machshava uh, place great emphasis on saying tachnun. This is considered to be a prayer which um, enhances the shmon esrei which was said. So it's a way of making sure that shmon esrei is going to be accepted. It's sort of like getting it uh, your your shmon esrei notarized. So if you want to make sure that it's going to be attended to, so you want, and you want to get your shmon esrei notarized, so you go ahead and you want to say tachanun afterwards. And they actually uh, the the uh, the post can actually say that in order for tachanun to be most effective to make your Shmon most acceptable in Shamayim, so you want to make sure not to interrupt at all between Shmon and Tachnun. So having conversation or something in between your Shmon and Tachnun is something which the postgame actually are very uh, opposed to, to, sh- to such a degree that they actually have to go out of their way to say, even in the event that a person did talk, they should still say Tachnun anyways. But they actually have a havamina. They actually they actually entertain the possibility that once one has gone ahead and uh, interrupted between Shmon Esrei and Tachnun, it may very well be that there's no point in saying Tachnun. As I said, we don't pass in that way, but they do entertain that uh, that that, uh, that possibility. So he says. Now the Kolbo says uh, this idea well, again. This relates to this Nefilas Apayim. So they focus more on the fact that there is a prayer which we say while falling on our face. That's what literally nefila sapai means, falling on your face. And it seems to be that for many of the Rishonim, they did not have a specific text which they would read. It was somewhat more fluid than what we have nowadays. And different, either different communities would say different things. And some people, they didn't even have a, a uniform the a uniform text, that people would just say their own private thing. And the Kolbo writes that what you want to do is, So he says, at that point, after, after Chazar Sashat, so the Shleach Tzibur and everybody else, so they fall on their face, and they lean to the left. So that's why primarily we go ahead and we do it like when we're not wearing tefillin or whatever, putting that aside, but we would go ahead and we would go on the left, and I didn't, I didn't know that. I never actually thought about that before. But when you are, if you are the Kohen in the Beis Amikdash, who's going to be slaughtering the animal, the lamb, which is going to be the Korban Tamid, so imagine that you're looking face-to-face with the animal over there, and now when you slaughter the animal, the animal is going to, if you remember, in the construction of the Beis Amikdash, so they had rings, 24 rings which were there, which would be used to uh, 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 constrain the animal to hold it down during the time of slaughter. So now the animal wasn't on its back, the animal was on its side. And the question is, which side is the animal lying on when you go ahead and you do the shechita? I never thought about it till the Kobo goes ahead and says that the reason why we go on our left is Zecher is to remind ourselves that when the Tamid, the Korban Tamid, the daily Korban, which is brought in the Beis Amitosh, would, 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 would be put onto its left side for slaughter. Okay, who knew? Kamosh Gazafti Lamali says, as I wrote above, and that, I don't have that text in front of me here. And then he says, that's the reason, number one, why we would primarily fall on our face, leaning a little bit to the left. That was my left, which I went. And then he says, And there's another reason why you would lean specifically to your left. And I don't know what exactly he means by that, but he says that that is demonstrative of freedom. Maybe because if you, maybe, maybe that's what it is. 
it just occurred to me that by the Pesach Seder, so when we drink the wine and we eat the matzah, remember you, you do Heseba to the left. So left is seen as a way of being able to demonstrate cheiris, as a way of being able to demonstrate a freedom rather than sitting straight up or something like that. So therefore, we want to go ahead and we want to, uh, we want to demonstrate freedom. So you're asking, what, what, what's the freedom which we're demonstrating as we say tachnun? So it says, fascinating, he says, A person who says tachnun is forgiven for all of their sins. Shumisvada, because in Tachnon, so you have a bit of vidui, you have a confession, vinofalapanov, and then you go ahead and you fall on your face. Kamosha also Moshe Rabbeinu, like Moshe Rabbeinu went ahead and did, as it says, Vaisha Bahar Arbaim Nova Arbaim Laila, the Moshe Rabbeinu sat on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights pleading with Akadosh Borhu to forgive Kla Yusuf for the hate of the ego for the ego. And then it says, and we'll see this idea later on. He says, that's, so that's one body position sitting. Then it says, Vanochi Amadati Bahar. Then Moshe Rabbeinu says, I stood on the mountain. Zu Amida, this is the part of a Monday, Thursday Tachnon where we're standing. And then Vesnapel Lifnei Hashem. And then Moshe Rabbeinu says, I fell before Hashem. Zu Nefila Sapayim. This refers to falling on one's face. And we go ahead and we replicate all three of these body positions over the course of prayer as well. And as we're going to see, as I said, later on in uh, uh, some of the other Mephorshim, so they actually point to that as three different things which we do in the course of saying Tachlun. A little bit standing, a little bit uh, uh, falling on our face, a little bit, uh, a little bit uh, sitting. Okay, so that is what the Kolbo says. Now, Rabbeinu Bachya, who is a commentary, commentator on the Chumash, so he says uh, a, a different idea. And he writes, uh, uh, those who have studied Rabbeinu Bachya, so you know that he writes uh, at great length. When he comments about something, he writes at great length. But we're just going to grab some snippets of what he says just to get the, uh, the overall gist of it. And he explains, this is in his commentary to Chumash in Bamibar Perk Tazayin. He says, Da, you should know. So there's three different intents, three different thoughts, which one is supposed to have when saying Tachnun. One is awe in reverence of the Divine Presence. The second one is Laharos Tsar is we're trying to demonstrate that we are submissive to HaKadosh Baruch Hu. And the third is Laharos Asiras Chushov Ubitohagashosov, and we're trying to show that all of our senses are nullified and also, in a sense, submissive to Akarish Borhu, that they're they're bound up and that they uh, they uh, they're, uh, they're they're not active. Maybe we'll say it like that. So what does that mean? So he says, Ha'acha So now he explains in greater uh, detail. He says one of them is to show awe or reverence to the Shrina. The purpose of this is to uh, to uh, to be uh, to be humble and to be tsanua. In this regard, we're using tsanua, not tsnias in terms of dress, but tsanua in terms of humility, knowing your place. Because covering one's face, not looking eye to eye, in, 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 it's in somebody, somebody else's eyes is a manner of humility and um, uh, boshes, is, uh, we'll just say humility. And being that when one davin shmonesrei, 
So you have to imagine that the divine presence is opposite you. That's always what you're supposed to think about. Like the Pasuk says, Shivisi Hashem Negdi Samid. In many shuls, they actually have that by the Amud, where the Chaz and Davins, they'll have that Pasuk there, that I place Hashem before me always. So being that we're supposed to demonstrate that we're, that the Shekhinah is there, Therefore, one of the methods of davening, which we do, is we cover our face. So by covering our face, that's demonstrative of the, that's, rec- that's recognizing the fact that the Shechina is there, and it's inappropriate to go ahead and stare at the Shechina. If you look in the writings of the Mekubalim, not that I've seen the writings in the column, but I've seen it quoted, that they say that's why ideally somebody who's not going to be uh, using a, a sitter, have their eyes open in the sitter, their eyes should be down. You want to be looking down at the time of Shmon right? Because as, we, as we've been saying throughout this, uh, this series, that the, the moment of Shmon or the time that you are in Shmon you're in a private conversation together with HaKadosh Baruch Hu, And when you're in that private conversation, Panim al Panim is what they say, that's face to face. So it's considered to be inappropriate to go ahead and stare into the eyes, Kivyaho of HaKadosh Baruch Hu, and therefore is a sign of humility, so a person should be looking down rather than looking up to, uh, to HaKadosh Baruch Hu. The only time, you should know, that the exception to that rule is in Kedusha, when we say Kadosh, 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 there it's brought down specifically to look up. You're trying to look up at HaKadosh Baruch Hu, and at that moment, that one moment when we go ahead and we do so, we replicate or we repeat what the angels say, so that moment HaKadosh Baruch Hu gets great nachas ruach from what we do, but as a general approach, we're not looking into Hashem's eyes, and therefore we look down, and in the context of Tachnun, we go ahead and we cover our face to, uh, to, uh, to indicate that. And he says, we know this is true, that covering the face is a sign of humility, because... When Moshe Rabbeinu, the first time Moshe Rabbeinu interacts with God by the burning bush, the Pasuk says, Moshe Panov, that Moshe Rabbeinu covered his face. Why? Because he was afraid to go ahead and stare at God. So we see from the, the first person who's having this intimate conversation with God, so his response was, I cannot look directly at him. I have to go ahead and I have to cover up my face. Now he says, also an interesting thing, and it's interesting for those who are up to date in Dafyomi, we had really uh, in the past week, but he says, he, he brings the idea that in Sefer Yechezkel, at the beginning of Sefer Yechezkel, so some of the angels, the ones which are called Chayos, that's a, we, we mention them by, by name in, the, in, the, in Kedusha at times, so he says on Shabbos, so the Chayos are Ratzov Vishov, they go out and they come back. So angels are always moving. So what's the significance of this idea that angels are always moving? Ratzova, Shov, Ratzova, Shov, they, they, they never stop for a moment. They're always in motion. So explains Rabbeinu Bachya. He says, Kolomer, She'enon Rashausli's Akib Osa Marutza. They can't stop their motion. Because if they were to stop for a moment, then they'd go ahead and they'd gaze upwards and they'd start staring at Kashbarf, which they're not allowed to do. And that is, and the reason why they're not allowed to stare is for the reason which we said is that one has to have reverence for the divine presence. So being that everybody looks to, uh, has a tendency, even angels want to look at something which is interesting. So therefore, if they were to stop, they would go ahead and end up gazing at a Baruch Hu, which would be inappropriate. And therefore it says that they quickly return. 
they get close to Gosh Baruch Hu, and then they come back. They get close, they come back, close, they come back. In that constant motion, they always have to look where they're going. That they, they, as soon as they get up to the highest levels where they can potentially look at a Kodesh Baruch Hu, then they go back down in order not to, uh, in order not to, uh, to gaze. So that is the, uh, so that's, that's idea number one of Nefila Sapayim, is we cover our face because of the reverence which we're supposed to have for the Divine Presence. And then he says, that Hashanis, now he elaborates on uh, uh, thought number two, that we want to show our submissiveness to HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Meaning what? And that is, So one who falls on their face, that's a sign of distress. Right? We know throughout Chumash that when bad, when Klai Yisrael behave badly, so what is the, uh, the, the reflexive response of Moshe and Aaron? Most times it says they fell on their face. Then they tear their garments or whatever. But usually when the bad news occurs, so the first thing that they do is they fall on their face. And being submissive in acting that out with one's body is a method of tshuva. Right? Tshuva, the, the sin is defiance against Hashem. Defiance is where you're going to sit, stand yourself up straight, and you're going to hold your head up and say, I don't have to listen to you. You put up your, your, uh, your, your chin, the body language people talk about that. They, they put up your chin in defiance of what's going on. So the opposite of that is when you crunch down and you, you huddle yourself and you become smaller. So becoming smaller is demonstrative of fear and afraid of the, uh, the potential uh, harm that could uh, befall a person. So tshuva is a time to go ahead and show that submissiveness. And then by doing so, the Oz Philosum Kubalis, that's going to assure that your tfila will be accepted. And therefore, Akarish Baruch Hu is going to be concerned about the pain that one is experiencing. And we'll go ahead and we'll uh, we'll satisfy his uh, that uh, um, satisfy that uh, uh, his request. And he says, and this is where the, the origin of this idea comes from. So if you remember, the Rabbeinu Bachi now takes us to the famous story in, uh, in Bab Metziah, where Rebbe Lezer got into a fight with the rest of the scholars of his time. He had a particular position about a matter of Tum and Tahara. Everybody else disagreed with him, and he was able to invoke all sorts of miracles from heaven to prove that he was correct. They didn't pay attention to any of that anyways. It said, who's God to decide what halacha should be? It's none of his business anyways. It's for, uh, for us down here to go ahead and, and decide. And they dismissed all of that. And ultimately, they went ahead and they put him in chayr. They felt that in order to defend the honor of Torah, it was necessary to go ahead and text communicate him and to isolate him from the rest of the community. Now, that all of itself is, is interesting. But now the Gemara tells us that the bisu Lezer so the one who was caught in the middle of this debate was Rebelezer's wife. Rebelezer was the one who was excommunicated. Rebelezer's wife was Rabbi Gamliel's sister. Rabbi Gamliel was the Nasi. He was the one who ultimately has to sign off on excommunicating Rebelezer. So Rabbi Gamliel went ahead and excommunicated his brother-in-law. So now the so Rebbe Lezer's wife, who is Rebbe Gamliel's sister, she's caught in between Rebbe Gamliel and Rebbe Lezer. 
and she knows what her husband is capable of doing. Anybody who's done a little bit of Gemara knows that if a rabbi gives you one of those rabbi stairs, so it's bad news for the Jews. So bad things can happen from that. And she was generally concerned that if her husband, Rebbe Lezer, will go ahead and daven, that something bad should happen to her brother, Abagamliel, it will actually happen. So what does the Gemara say? So he says, So from the time that her brother, Rebbe Gamliel, put her husband into excommunication, went ahead and excommunicated him. So every time, the way the Bofarshim explained it is, every time Rabbi Lezer would finish Shmonas, right, and he was about to say Tachnun, and she feared that through the power of Tachnun, that's when he would say something negative about Rabbi Gamliel, and that would be Rabbi Gamliel's demise. So every time she would send one of the kids to go banging on the door in the middle of class or something like that, and, and Rabbi Lezer would get interrupted, so there'd be that interruption between his Shmonasre and Tachnun, and he was never able to juxtapose them so that Tachnun would have the potency which could potentially harm her brother Rabbi Gamliel. So, so uh, the Rabbeinu Bachi explains that Va'inyan Kedei that she was trying to prevent her husband, Rebbe Lezer, from experiencing tsar, getting to the depths of his being in a moment of tsar, in a moment of pain and anguish. And while he's in the pit of his pain and the, in, in, in the in the, uh, submissiveness, it would be at that moment that he would go ahead and cause her brother, Rebbe to be punished. And that's what she was fearful of. She was fearful that her husband would go ahead and, and doing that. So what we see from that is, says Rabbi Nobach is, is that at a moment when a person is in his most submissive, in his lowest position, that the most effective prayers are when a person sees himself in the depth. We think that greatness is going to be when you're on top of the mountain, but when you're on top of the mountain, your prayer is much less effective than when you are in the depth of the valley, the mimamakim. So therefore, she went out of her way to make sure that her husband did not say tachlun during that whole episode. She tried. She failed. There was one day that she missed it. She, she didn't realize that he said a quick shmon essay that day. So she, was, uh, so she, so she missed it. But, but she went out of her way during that episode to make sure that her husband, Rebbe Lezer, would not have an opportunity to say tachlun because she was certain that that would be the end for her brother, Abba Gamliel, and she was genuinely uh, fearful of that. So that is number two. And then Vashlishis, the third idea is to nullify one's senses. So here we're talking about going into some sort of um, um, uh, meditative state where one uh, is, uh, uh, you know, they're uh, sort of they have an out-of-body experience or they disassociate from their senses and they become like pure soul without a, a physical connection to the, uh, to the body. Again, I can just tell you what it would be described like. I can't uh, describe it from experience. So he says, and the idea is also fascinating. He says, and the way this is accomplished is, and Rabbeinu Bachi is actually probably describing the actual meditative process which you're supposed to go through when you're saying tachnun, even though for us, since we have no, uh, I shouldn't speak for you, but uh, those who don't have meditative experience wouldn't know how to get yourself into that mindset. But he says, what you do is, the person is going to fall on their face, so you cover your eyes, so there's no sensory input which is coming in from your visual system. 
v'sosem piv, you close your mouth, v'mesachim b'machshavos, she'ena ro'a nizko v'toalto, and the person goes ahead and imagine in his mind that he cannot see what's coming. He's cut off. He's completely reliant on Hashem. Usually the senses are what, are, what the brain uses to go ahead and take in set the input and to decide whether or not the situation, the, the circumstance we find ourselves in, is it safe or is it dangerous? Do I need to take precautions or I'm good to go and I'm, and I'm fine? When you go ahead, that's the scariness of the dark is you have no idea what's there. Are there snakes around me? There's scorpions around me. There's who knows what lurks in the dark. And that's why the dark is so scary. As adults, we get, uh, we get over it a little bit. But certainly that's what scares children is the boogeyman is there. And who knows what's going to be there in the dark? So in the, in the course of saying Tachanan, we try and cut off all of that sensory input. It's like going into a sensory deprivation tank of sorts. And you go ahead and you're not getting a, a, any input. And now, and you have no idea what's going on around you. You're in a safe place. You're not in a safe place. There's danger there. There's not danger there. And you have no idea to be able to accomplish or do anything unless Hashem takes care of it. And that's another thought that you're supposed to bring with you as you go ahead and say, There, I am no longer, our senses give us a false sense of control over our circumstances and our future. We figure that if I, if I could see my, my, my surroundings and I could be cognizant of that, I could be in control of what's going on. And Tachanun is the ultimate reminder that we have no control whatsoever and no sensory input. And that is point number two. I'm sorry, that's, that's point number, uh, number three. And, um, okay, so that is what Rabbeinu uh, Bachia goes at and says, what we're trying to accomplish with the regular Tachlun. And then he says, um, okay, we'll get to that too. Now, in the world of prayer, so from uh, uh, Rabbi Dr. Eli Monk, so he goes at and he writes as follows. He says, this prayer is called Tachlun. The Zohar connects it with the report of the Torah that Moshe and Aaron fell on their faces before God whenever they prayed for the fulfillment of an urgent and intense need. And he gives examples of that. It is, in fact, evident from the sources that this act forms the most complete mode of prayer, thus connecting Tachlun with the preceding tefillah. Hence, as we mentioned, it is, directly, it is linked directly to it. No interruption should intervene between Shmon Esrei and Tachman. The Kaddish following Shmon Esrei is accordingly deferred until after the Tachman, meaning like we do by Mar, that we finish Shmon Esrei and we say a, 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 a Kaddish afterwards. Kaddish always is going to follow, a certainly a Kaddish Tiskabel is going to follow Shmon Esrei because that, that phrase means that it's Aramaic for our prayers should be accepted before you. So you want to say that Kaddish Tiskabel after Shmon Esrei, but we push it off because Tachlun is really connected, is really a subcategory of Shmon Esrei. And therefore, we're not going to say a Kaddish afterwards, we push it off. And then he says... Um, the text of the Tachnun, according to our Minog, so this is where we say, where we say, 
like you have on the screen here. Finally, get something on the screen. So this is taken from the sixth chapter of Tehillim. This is what we Ashkenazim say. Different, uh, uh, different uh, communities may say a different paragraph for Tachnon rather than this one. But he says, we say this one consists chiefly of the sixth psalm, which David, suffering in body and soul, uttered after his transgression with Bathsheba. So this is David Amal expressing his pain and anguish over the cry, over the, the, the sin which he committed. And it is a cry to God by a man worn down by the feeling of profound guilt and utter loneliness. Yet it shows us that there is a way to find mercy and help from on high, even from the very depths of distress. God has heard the voice of, of my crying. Um, right, Hashem has heard the, 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 the sound of my cries. Everyone who speaks this prayer may say this and be certain that God will answer his prayer if it is a prayer issuing from a broken and downtrodden heart which Hashem never disdains. So that's like we said, that this is the ultimate of submissiveness, and when you get to the ultimate of submissiveness, which is the mimamakim, the, the depths, when we cry out, Baruch Hu, so that uh, almost counterintuitively, that ends up being the place where the tefillah is going to be most, uh, most effective. Now, after we say this, now we have this paragraph of the Hashem Yisrael, we have all of that over there. So, um, yeah. Okay, so now, one of the things which, uh, as I mentioned, we'll try and do the, just the, this, uh, this section, and then we'll call for tonight. But one of the things which, which you said is that uh, many people have the practice of saying the, uh, the, uh, the seven paragraphs on Monday, Thursday at warp speed whatever warp speed is, but they say it at warp speed, and you run out of time to be able to say it all. So you, you can't keep running behind because eventually you got to get to Kriya Satori. you got to catch up with the Tzibor at some point. So how do you go ahead and how do you realign yourself with others? So recently what I've been doing is, if you notice, you have on Monday, Thursday, you have the opening paragraph. Then you say a paragraph, and then you say again. Then you say the next paragraph, and believe it or not, you say again. So I figure, you know what? I already said it. <laughs> if I say it once, so that should be good enough, and that's a way to catch up time. It's only one, you know, I'll only save myself five lines, but I'm five lines closer to catching up. If I just go ahead and say it once, there's nothing new which is being said anyways, so how could it possibly be a big deal? Now, fortunately, I found out that it actually is a big deal. Not such a big deal, but it's a, it's a big deal. So the Elia Rabbi says as follows. He writes, regarding this, this section which we say, which we add on Monday, Thursday. So he says, That these sections, beginning with all the way until the end of that, which ends over here, with that same thing, so he says that that was written, it was drafted by Chizkiyahu HaMelech, when Sancheirev went ahead and put a siege around Yerushalayim. So Amar Bebeis shows Belial, he got up, seems to be the first two hours of the night, and he went into the Beis HaMikdash, he went from his palace into the Beis HaMikdash, and he said this prayer in the Beis HaMikdash. The Yeshba Tevos Kiminyan Chizkiyah. And it has 
the uh, the let the number of letters which equals to chizkiya, or the number of words equal to chizkiya. I didn't count up the hundred and. 130 words, which there should be, but I'm just going to take his word for it. If you want to count, you can go ahead and count later. But he says, Vod base tevos yoser. It's actually 132. Because he did it the two hours into the night. So his name, which is 130, plus the two hours of the night that he said it, so that's the 132. And then he says, And you can actually find his name hinted to. So here, you have the paragraph chusa, that's a ches, the next paragraph begins, oh, sorry, the previous one begins with a Zion, Zarim, that's a Zion. Then you go down, you get Kolenu, that's the Kuf. And then you have the Hashem, okay, you saw that's a Yud. And you have a Hey, so you have the name Chizkiah, which is spelled out in the first letter of a number of these paragraphs, although it's not in order. And he says, now why is it that it's not in order? Usually we like these things to be in order. We like it when it aligns stuff like we, we talked about by Lechadodi. So we, we spell out Shlomo Halevi. Shamor V'zachor, Likra Shabbos, V'hayu Limshisa. So we go ahead and we spell, uh, uh, sorry, Mikdash, uh, I think it begins, whatever it is. So we spell out the name in order. So why over here is it not in order? So he says, V'hitim Hashem Elokei Yisrael, and Habayt, the reason why you have the Yud of this paragraph, of this word of Hashem's name, and then the He of Chizkiah's name, the first two, is Mishum Kavar Hashem, is to give honor to Hashem's name. So being that Chizkiah includes Hashem's name, so we put the Yud K of Hashem's name first. And then he says, now this is where, this is where I found out that I was making a mistake. He says, Umashanagu Lomar Besof, Hashem Elokei Yisrael ben kocharuz v'charuz u'besofo. The fact that we go ahead and we open with this paragraph, we say in between each of the stanzas, and then we go ahead and we conclude once again with Hashem Elokei Yisrael, that same line again. So he says, is because ki kishetimane hakol imakefel shekoflin. So if you go ahead and you add all of that up together, all the times that you say it, and you add it all up together, timsa tevos keminyan so you'll end up with the number of words which equals to his name, which is Chizkiah, the son of Achaz. So if you're going to go ahead and you're trying, going to try and capture the allusion to his name, it only works out if you repeat that phrase, Hashem Lokei Yisrael, in between each stanza. If you start skipping them, then it's missing some of its, uh, it's missing some of its meaning. And why, why do we go, why did Chizkiah go ahead and uh, compose something which included not only his name, but his father's name. If you know a little bit about the, the which I know very little, but Achaz, Chizkiah's father is actually a Russia. So why do we go ahead? So why did Chizkiah go out of his way, not only to include his own name in this prayer, to embed his own name in the prayer, but the fact that he is Chizkiah, the son of Achaz, who happened to be a Russia. So he says, Lomar, the reason why he did that is to let everybody know that Chizkiah's power of prayer was so great that he was able to get his father out of Gehenim. So his father, as a Rasha, found himself in Gehenim, but the son, who was a tzaddik, Chizkiah was a tzaddik, he was able to employ the power of prayer in order to get his father out of Gehenim, and therefore that's the power of Tachman, that's the power of prayer, is the ability to go ahead and do so, and therefore... Uh, I'm better off skipping some other paragraphs here or there, rather than messing around with the order of the prayer and the way that this particular one is said, 
being that this one is said specific, for a very specific intent to allude to the fact that Chizkiah was able to take his father out of Gehenna. And that is what the, that uh, paragraph uh, represents. So we will... Um, okay, so we're going to hold it over here. So we'll... Um, actually, I should uh, let you know. Let me just stop the... Uh, yeah, thank you. Stop share. Stop recording. Um,